welcome to another edition of Surgeons Lives. I'm John Monson, your host. Today's guest is an old friend of mine, Dr. Robbie Madoff, and is best known for, I guess, being a stalwart of the University of Minnesota uh, Colorectal Surgery Group, um, the oldest fellowship uh, program in the country, in the US, um, and is also best known for uh, being a DCR editor-in-chief for a number of years where he uh, set the standard um, for the highest um, scientific integrity. I know him as being a man of many interests and a thoughtful individual who could um, spread his wisdom far and wide. Um, I'm looking forward very much to talking to him today. So Without further ado, let's uh, join the uh, discussion. I'm John Monson, and this is Surgeons Lives. Uh huh. Look at that groovy background you have there, John. Especially designed for you. Thank you so much. But uh, welcome, and thanks for taking time out of your uh, Our busy day. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll come on to that, I'm sure. Um, so this um. As I said to you before, this uh, this is all about um, not so much about the um, um, the wonderfulness of a surgeon as the surgeon, um, because there are many opportunities for surgeons to tell people about their career, academic or clinical, um, and we will talk about that obviously because it's uh, uh, it's inextricably linked with the rest of your life, but um, also just to talk about some. Um, other aspects of life. Um, sometimes it's hobbies. Sometimes it's just interests. Or um, I, you know, I'm sure you know Fabio Patenti, for example, who is currently sailing across the Pacific in a catamaran. Um, no kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm going to hang up now. <laughs> yes, it is a little intimidating. <laughs> so I feel ashamed. Um, so normally what I um <coughs> been doing is to just as a starting point is to ask people just to give the assembled uh, millions who are viewing this um, or will be viewing this um uh, a brief introduction to life and time starting with the words I was born in. So okay. off you go. That was my that was my cue. That was your cue. Uh, do I have to say my name? No, you do not. <laughs> okay. Uh, may I say thanks for having me? It's a pleasure. Um, so I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and for anybody who knows me and knows that I spent uh, really almost my entire career in Minneapolis, uh, living in the Midwest for most of my life came as a big surprise. It was never my intention. Um, but I was uh, actually the son of a surgeon. My dad was a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, I never exactly had the intention go to go to medical school, but never had the intention not to. And uh, when I got to college, I thought I'd try out being a pre-med and then it was the thin edge of the wedge and off I was, off I went. Um, I went to college at Harvard. I went to medical school at Columbia. Um, 
I was actually very torn about what I was going to do with my career. Um, I didn't know that, again, I had a, a tremendously ambivalent feelings about being a surgeon. And right down to the last moment, I don't know if I was, didn't know if I was going to be applying in internal medicine, um, which basically the teaching at that institution, many institutions was, if you're not an internist, you're a moron. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to be a smart guy. Uh, so I dabbled with that idea a lot and uh, not quite at random, but almost. Uh, and after a lot of agonizing, I decided uh, to go into surgery. Um, I matched with my then girlfriend, now wife, Jane, uh, and we came to the University of Minnesota. Um, I did okay for a year of surgery. My second year of surgery, I actually absolutely hated it. That was a tremendous waste of time. I didn't think it was, I was learning anything. I was chasing around trying to find people who wanted their gallbladders out for no reason. And, just doing Scott and not being challenged in any particular way. Um, <clears throat> I dropped off track that this is not tenable. I don't want to do this. And I actually went to the Department of Medicine for a year. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and what I discovered there was that that was even worse. Was, <laughs> I was actually uh, appalled. And I, I know this is not fair to uh, medicine, but, it's, but uh, nothing got done. There was a lot of twirling around and getting consults, but we never really seemed to accomplish much in, in my so, so at this point, <laughs> when things were not exactly as, as envisaged, shall we say, um, were you thinking that this was a, a professional phenomenon, like uh, associated with the phenomenon of surgery in medicine? Or were you thinking this is Minneapolis? Um, you know, where were you in your thinking? Yeah, no, I I uh, actually st still liked the idea of being a doctor. I had come right. to that; that was good. Um, but I was really lost about mm. how to accomplish that. I thought a little bit about going into anesthesia. I thought a little bit about changing programs. I actually sort of uh, had a brief dalliance with uh, your old place, University of Rochester. I uh, never went there, but mm -hmm. it was in communication with him. Um, and then uh, to settle the issue, um, I decided to drop out for a year. And um, <clears throat> I took a year off and uh, traveled the world. So just escaped completely. Um, and very much like Aaron Rodgers has done for three days, apparently. <laughs> like, Isn't he like uh, packing himself in melted chicken fat or something to? No, uh, <laughs> I think he went into a darkened room for three days. A darkened room, probably without the, without intellectually the, the same thing. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, the chicken fat helps, honestly. So, was do you think this was? Um, I, you know, I talked to um, an orthopedic surgeon recently who, you know, left uh, Zimbabwe um, at 18 um, and went into medical school because that's what you did then. Um, you know, it's not the American model of four years of rhetoric or whatever it might be. And, and he said, you know, when he was 18, he literally did not know who he was. Um, he just followed a plane of least resistance. 
and he was nothing but fortunate that it turned out okay, but it took him a number of years to work out who and what he was in as a person. W was there a degree of that? Uh, I'm that guy. Actually. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so, you know, going to travel around the world was actually something I wanted to do. And it was, I did view it as an opportunity that wouldn't likely come up again. Of course it didn't. Um, to have it, to make a break, I was kind of out of the surgery, uh, the routine, and I wasn't going back to medicine. So there was kind of a natural hiatus there. Um, so part of it was to seize the opportunity. And also uh, Jane had finished her internal medicine training. And so she was free. So we could do it. So part of it was a practical issue. Impact, but part of it was, I was just really totally yeah. lost and at sea. Um, and um, actually what I did was uh, at the University of Minnesota where I was training, um, there was mandatory lab in those days. It was a little yeah. bit unusual, but um, so I, I had the lab coming up, which normally came after your third year of surgery. And I had just done two, but I said, you know, I'm on this natural break here. Um, they didn't exactly know I was traveling the world. The, the uh, department head, uh, Dr. Nigerian, actually thought I was still hanging out in the medicine department uh, on the advice of another very senior guy who said, don't tell him, just tell him you want to extend your leave. So anyway, I, um, so they kind of thought I was there, but I said, you know, I've been on this break. And while I'm on the break, instead of coming back to third year surgery resident, which I dreaded, I said, why don't I just go into the lab? And then when I'm done, I'll finish all my surgery stuff. But I'm, you know, it's all broken up anyway. So they said, fine. Uh, so I came back from my travels. I went into the lab for two years. Uh, and then when I came out, um, probably shouldn't admit it publicly, but they forgot that I hadn't done my third year. So I just came out as a four. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's much they can do about that now. I, I, yeah, no, it was actually all all legal. I looked into this very carefully and I'll fit all the requirements and everything was fine. But but uh, I don't think it's what they had in mind. But, One of the advantages of a large department, you know. <laughs> a large department. And, you know, I was really just a piece of the furniture. I mean, by yeah, now, sure. this is now five years into since they've known me. And it's mm. like, really, can't you be gone yet? Yeah. So it was actually my, you know, and then when I came out as a four, even though I didn't know how to do anything, um, you actually had responsibilities and they actually tried to teach you things and you weren't standing there back in, you know, before the days of the book Walters holding the Richardsons for hours at a time. And actually, then I started to like it. And what, um, what enormous um, breakthroughs did you achieve in the, in the two years in the lab? None. No. <laughs> and, you know, I was studying uh, cardiac mechanics. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, right. It, it was a waste. That was a complete waste. So, when you, so do you think it was a waste? I mean, obviously, on one level, yes. But uh, did it did it teach you any disciplines or um, um, any intellectual rigor, or was it a flat out waste? Pretty close to a flat out waste. Mm -hmm. I was, I, it helped me once when I was um, 
do when I was a senior resident in the trauma service and the guy got shot in his heart and uh, I was totally calm and comfortable like sewing on a beating heart. I was used to that. Yeah. So I just, like, yeah. this is just like I've done it. Um, but otherwise, uh, my mentor wasn't really interested in the project. I wasn't yeah. really interested in the project. Yeah. Um, my mentor didn't know anything about it and was not a particularly good mentor to me. And so I put it through my time, you know, it was, it was life in the lab. It wasn't very difficult. So I didn't, yeah. Yeah. but it was uh, not fruitful. Not fruitful. So, so there, I mean, it, I have to say, I mean, it's, it's, as you say, it's a relatively unusual pathway. Um, and I think many residents, if they told that story would, be following up with so uh, I got dumped from the residency or something like that, you know, etc. But not only did you not get dumped from the residency, but in fact you never got dumped from Minnesota. Period, um, which well, is I, I actually, remarkable. Uh, yeah, I think there's a fair amount of luck involved with that. Sure, I know because um, you know it was a. Um, pyramidal program and a sort of in part it depended on the bodies and the slots going into and coming out of the lab and so if there was a space and they needed somebody they could fit me in if there were no mentors available or nobody had any funding or something like that I could have been evaporated and then who knows I might have met you as a uh, at the University of Rochester. But the interesting thing is, though, that you did stay. I mean, they, they obviously, uh, your your gap year where there wasn't really a natural gap, per se, um, or clearly produced um, the product ended up being something that was clearly attractive to them to keep you on ultimately as faculty. Yeah, well, I, I actually, I found my footing as yeah, a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a good, I was, then I was a good resident. I was interested and I was engaged. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I liked people and I liked the work and I found it uh, challenging and rewarding. So there was actually was a big change. And maybe, you know, I think it speaks a lot to my immaturity in the first part of it, but I think it also speaks to sort of the stupidity of the system. Yeah. That, you know, there's this long run up to what is actually training in surgery, I think. Yeah. Less so now than it used to be in them days when there was a you know this gigantic service component that yeah. ate up you yeah. days. And much less interest in education, I think. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. And um but when I you know finally had something to engage with that engaged me, I was able to do it in, in a, Yeah. Yeah, I mean training in those days was very osmotic and was assumed to occur just by standing within the radiation field of greatness um, without anything ever being said. Um, and then, you know, whilst that greatness and osmosis was occurring, there were intermittent blasts of abuse, um, you know, just about covered it. And as long as it went on for long enough, you were trained. Um, I think it is very different. I mean, I lived through the introduction of the working time restrictions in in the UK um, as a chairman and you know one of the things that it did was that it moved people away from the osmotic hours endless hours process to where they actually had to focus on education 
because those hours were gone and the trainees were saying, hey, I'm according to this contract here, I'm a trainee. Um, so I'd quite like you to train me now, please. And that was, uh, you know, that was a cultural shock that um, most established surgeons took some time getting their head around. And obviously, as you know, as you go through your career, you meet natural teachers. Um, but you also meet people who are not natural teachers and are really not impressed by the whole thing anyway. Um, so it was, it's been a big change, hasn't it? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point because it was surgery, it was American surgery and surgery internationally is very slow to come around to that. Mm -hmm. The model always had been, and you know, it's sort of, to some extent, I think it, it's like abused children that they grow yeah. up to abuse their children because it's what they know. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So fast forward then and um, colorectal fellowship and faculty. So I did my, so I fell under the sway of various colorectal surgeons uh, in Minnesota. The very first one actually was before I thought I was going to go into the field was uh, Sandy Santat, Santat Avatthong, as he's known to the world, who when I was uh, an intern, um, he was the sole colorectal attending at the university. And um, there was the ongoing rectal cancer screening study that was proctoscoping people. Nice. So I used to go to, go to clinic in the morning and you would proctoscope 25 people. And wow. uh, Sandy <laughs> said very wisely to me, he said, okay, this is how you do it. You only ever ask three questions. Uh, you know, uh, any change your bowels, any bleeding. And I forget what the third one was and never ask them until they're head down, because you put them on the exam table, tip them bottom up the old fashioned way. Uh, he says, otherwise they talk too much. <laughs> so it was actually my first model was Sandy. Uh, and then he went off to Mayo and then yeah. fell under this. Then uh, a guy who maybe, you know, maybe you don't know, Bubrick, uh, who was mm -hmm. a wonderful guy at the county hospital, just a great mensch and a natural educator and real model. And then I fell under the sway of Stan Goldberg, mm -hmm. Dave Rothenberger, and that crowd, the Wong, John Bowles. Um, so I, I ended up doing my fellowship there. Um, and then when I finished it, I actually went, um, went back east. I didn't really want to live in Minnesota. Uh -huh. So I, I, I had a job at UMass for two years. And then after after one year, uh, the group called me back and wanted to hire me. And uh, then I agonized and agonized about should I leave my home base, Massachusetts, yeah, yeah. family and friends and all kinds of people there. Uh, <clears throat> and had a very hard time deciding it, but ended up back in Minnesota and went on it. Which turned out to be a good decision. I mean, you you know you um, you did great things there, and um, you know be, became part of the faculty furniture for for many years. Yeah, you know, it's I'll never know if it was a good decision or not. Honestly. Sure, you know, professionally, it was it was the obvious choice. It was like the professional decision was go back yeah. there. That was a better, more promising job, more opportunities. Um, you know, it was a wrench from the family. Yeah. 
lasted for 40 years or 30, yeah. or 30 years. Um, uh, but anyway, you know, it, it worked out. I liked living in Minnesota. I liked Minnesota. I liked our division a lot, really a lot. Uh, I was fulfilled professionally in many, many ways, more than uh, I necessarily would have been. Uh, so it was a good decision for sure, professionally. Yeah, and yeah. Not, I don't look back on it and say that I've screwed up my life by no, deciding. Sure, sure. And uh, you obviously had, I, I mean, you've obviously been able to identify mentors in your life. I mean, you, you mentioned the mentor that, you know, the standard answer would be in Minnesota, you know, your mentor has to be Stan Goldberg, but um, you've obviously got other, you know, had other mentors during your time there as well. Yeah, I mean, Stan is a uh, is a unique guy. As yeah. you know, most people know uh, he's a zealot about colorectal surgery. He's yeah. devoted to it. He loves it. He wants other people to love it. He's a wonderful teacher. Um, he is, and you know, I think part of it is when when you were working with Stan, you felt like, well, I can really do this stuff. And of mm -hmm. course, why you could do it was Stan was setting everything up, and everything was. He's a very tidy surgeon. Everything was neat and under control and encouraging. Um, but then there, you know, there was a whole, there was a large faculty always in Minnesota. Uh, yeah. And um, so there were a lot of different styles that you could absorb and a lot of things you could take from different individuals. And uh, of course, the the Minnesota model was a, is not as, um, I don't know what the word is, but it's, it's not a, single campus traditional model i mean it's it's scattered across numerous hospitals a little bit like <clears throat> our group in florida you know we're in multiple different hospitals and you and i discussed that at one point um which brings its own issues and i i've um despite what you might think i always try to listen what you tell me um listen to what you tell me and um i do remember you telling me that the key to that, to success in that environment was in your case, in the Minnesota case, was that the fellowship was the glue that held everybody together. Uh, I think you said on Fridays, for example, and, and that glue was really critical. Yeah, well, you have a good memory, but but that's actually, uh, that's that's really true. And uh, there's always been a very strong, you know, this is, this comes directly from Stan. Uh, you know, a strong sense of training the next generation. People who come there to be on the faculty uh, largely come because they like that feeling and they want to be involved in the training. And uh, there is a, you know, a real sense of unity there. The group is uh, basically uh, bipartite in a sense because there's a, uh, which, is, which is not what it was when I started everybody worked for, for Stan's group, which was basically a private practice group. Right. And the group covered the university hospital practice. Okay. Um, and then some years later, uh, Dave Rothenberger actually went over to be a full timer at the U. He was the first. Yeah. And so now there's a group of uh, five at the U and there's a group of about 15 changes from year to year, a little bit in the private group. Uh, and they still share this you know, common uh, devotion to the training program, um, but uh, they work for you know their financial competitors. 
So, uh, you know, provides uh, someday a little bit of friction that didn't used to be there. Yeah, it's it's definitely an unusual model, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, you couldn't create it from scratch again. I think there's been a lot of historical buy-in to it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, um, you, I've always, in my mind, rightly or wrongly, viewed you, and this is a, I'm sure this is a cheesy phrase, but um, viewed you as a man of some um, culture and, um, you know, thoughtfulness, um, you know, with interests outside and, um, and um, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, that was always my sense. Um, um, you know, what is, what was, has life been to you for 30 years in Minnesota outside of operating on hemorrhoids and colons, et cetera? And, and where did it come from? Um, so, you know, culturally that has, uh, cultural interests have always been a big deal for me. So that's been constant since adulthood, I would say. So, you know, Minnesota, I mean, now uh, I'm living in New York and, uh, you know, it's like a playground. Uh, there's zillions of museums, cultural institutions, music, uh, arts, there's uh, theater. Uh, there's, I mean, now I'm just going around reaping yeah. what's here, uh, which is fantastic. In Minnesota, there was actually a very lively cultural scene as well. They had two orchestras, they had the Guthrie Theater, they had uh, small theaters. Uh, so I was busy with all that kind of stuff. Um, I've been a pretty uh, avid reader of, I kind of like the long, boring books, specialty, uh, but I, fiction and uh, a lot of nonfiction. So that's always been a piece. Uh, so I like to think of myself the way that you have kindly thought of me is, is sort of myself. <laughs> I, I am interested in a lot of things and uh, stimulated by a lot of cultural things, movies. I, I never checked as to whether I never checked as to whether you were one of the few people who had um, read um, Ulysses and finished it. I have read Ulysses and finished. <laughs> Yes, and, it's, done, and I'm gearing up because you really have to read it. People say a second time to enjoy it because it was. Yes, yeah. like, it's have, as, um, you read it and finished it, or read it and petered out. Well, I think many people. I, I have to admit, I did peter out. I, I, I it. Um, and you're not meant to say that being Irish and all of that sort of stuff, but. Yeah. Um, but I know but there we're are down to things. hard truths here, John. Exactly. We're bearing everything. Um, I, I always was. Um, I always remember the phrase when somebody was talking about Wagner's music, and the phrase was, "Yes, it's not as bad as it sounds." <laughs> so, um, so now, um, so yes, I have made. I, I yes, I have made it through that. It is, but you know, it's. It's difficult work when it's when it breaks into a chapter that's written in Middle English. It's really you know it's an act of faith yeah, through, yeah. and you need help. You yeah. just can't do it without reading things or taking a course or doing something on the side. So you just have a clue. 
I yeah, I, I just uh, I can't imagine he would have been an easy person to be stuck in an elevator with. Um, um, just well, an, ele an elevator, the ride would end. <laughs> just a, it's just a guess. <laughs> but uh, so so now you um um you you found and I'm I'm kind of doing this chronologically, although there's no reason to, but. Um, you found um, a, a phase of your life which probably went on for a decade or more um, in the journal work that you did. I mean, obviously you had an academic career that went on all the way, um, but you found yourself um, suddenly, um, you were that person who followed a legend um, uh, as editor-in-chief of DCR. I recall, I recall that process quite well. Um, and um, um, why did you do that? Why did you want to do that? Well, you know, I liked it a lot. I've been doing it for quite a while. So I had been, I, I can't possibly tell you the number of years, but I had joined the editorial board uh, some years back. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Fazio uh, made me a, one of the co-editors. So as you know, the structure of that journal, uh, it's, a working journal. The co-editors basically shared the submissions mm -hmm. and you took care of your own submissions and, um, and did the process much like the editor-in-chief does, although not quite as much as the editor-in-chief does. Um, but I quite liked that as well. Um, and I liked, you know, I felt like there was, I could have an impact on our society and on the education of surgeons by trying to, my main thing, even when I became editor-in-chief was get rid of the junk that was filling the journal. I think that, um, I, you know, we wanted to, everybody wanted to get rid of the case reports, which are amusing, but not very, you know, often not that educational, not good for your impact factor. Uh, weak papers, small retrospective experiences, some by, important people within the society, some just by regular Joes trying to get something published, survey papers taking snapshots with the typical response rates of 35% you know, of the people happen to answer the survey, felt you should do this and not that. There's a lot of a lot of fat to be trimmed out of the journal. And I like that opportunity to try and I wanted to uh, improve the quality of the journal. Uh, so uh, when I was co-editor, uh, Jim Church and John Rombo were the other ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Vic got sick. Mm -hmm. And then it was sort of the three of us, it was kind of a triumvirate uh, who were doing the journal jointly, not with a specific leader. Uh, and then uh, I applied to be the chief, the uh, editor in chief, and got the job. And and that was really my agenda was that I wanted, you know, the minor things where I wanted to give it a more unified design and stop having everybody send in the graphs that they drew or they did in their computers. Yeah. That that, you know, like stylistically barbaric yeah. and ugly. Uh, so I want to change that. But I really, you know, my main effort was to try and increase the quality of stuff that we got and try and get rid of the bad stuff that we were publishing. Uh, and it would, turned out it was sort of a virtuous circle because as you did that, the impact factor started going up. 
that draws more papers, better quality papers, you can choose things better. Um, and so I th that was my goal for doing it. And I, you know, found it stimulating and like the work, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, and it's been interesting um, uh, serving as a co-editor for the last few years that um, um, the gods clearly um, were unhappy with what you did because one of the side effects of COVID um, was the most spectacular increase in submissions to the journal with um, a, an unbelievable rise in the amount of rubbish. Um, and it's been really quite a, and, and it's not just ECR, all the journals will, will say that now, that you know the number of submissions have rocketed um, and there, you know, all of those things that you described, those categories, um, you know, have have reemerged in a reinvigorated manner, um, and take, um, you know, I, I I spent many years, never, almost never, um, uh, rejecting a paper without review. Um, you know, just as just all editors or co-editors have their own little personal fetish about what they like or don't like, etc. But I rarely did that. And I find myself doing it um, more and more often. And the other problem that's emerged from COVID is that it's become amazingly difficult to get people to review papers now. Um, it takes, you know, I would, I would request maybe six reviewers to get to um, and that was not the case. And um, I do recall when you ruled the editorial board with that famous iron fist, clothed in velvet, of course. Um, um, you know, it, it, I think everyone knew on the editorial board that um, uh, declining to, re, re, to review a paper was not really an understandable phenomenon. Um, um, but that's gone as well now, which is... Even on the board. Uh, e even on the board. Uh, because I, that really just applied to board members that this was... Yeah, no, 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 for sure. Yes, I understand. Um, right. and, and, I, and reasonably so, you know. Um, right. But no, it's um, it's a different um, environment um, from COVID, I think. Uh, it's it definitively related to COVID. So... But, you know, I have to say just, you know it's part of the maturation of having the editor role or co-editor role, because I mean, I also used to think I'm not gonna reject anything just because I don't like it. But then what it turns out, if it's something that you really know at the end of the day, you just think it's beyond the pale, it's not good enough. You send it out for review, the, you know, the dirty secret of peer review is that it's so random what people think about the papers. I mean, you pick qualified people, but the dis the disparity in the opinions that you get are typically three reviews, one accept, one reject, and one yeah. revise is sort of your usual. Yeah. Mm. But it, when I used to send out papers, I thought, well, I'll just send this out, you know, to some tough guys so that I won't have to deal with it or just, you know, send it out so I have some other comments and some other insight into it. And then people say, oh, even though yeah, it's just a survey, but I really like it. It's, you know, really yeah. shed, you know what the third. <laughs> so, so increasingly, it's like, I don't want to um, make apologies for not accepting this thing. It's just not the qual. I, I can make this basic assessment of the quality at this level. I, I can see yeah. the bottom cut yeah. off. Yeah. 
but anyway, but I had that same exact evolution as you. And then I was always just dealing with these things that people like that. I just thought was, yes, but the methodology is so bad. There's no, even if it might be. Exactly. Yeah. And we will, we Keep will, we Keep will skip past the brief existence of Wacko's Corner, as you phrased it, <laughs> which, which thankfully is lost in the mists of time. Um, so, <laughs> Well, when you become editor-in-chief, you can bring it back. <laughs> no, thank you. So <laughs> now you, um, you uh, spent your career in, uh, in Minnesota with Stan, who, as you say, is unique and a legend and all sorts of things and is um continues to be passionate and and uh, committed and involved um and uh you know is an example of somebody you know who has not stepped away um, yeah. and yet you have um and you've stepped away um both um functionally and physically um stepped away so um, how did that thought process? I'm I'm always interested in, you know, why some people continue working forever and ever, and some people go, okay, I'm done here. Um, you know, the late, the late great John Gallagher, finished his clinic on a Friday afternoon, um, the week after his 65th birthday, and packed his bag and left, um, as he had always said he would. I mean, he was a very rigid man in many respects, but he said he would, and he did. Um, he said he would stop clinical practice um, on his 70th birthday, and he did, literally that day. Um, so how did you work that out in your mind? Yeah, well, he's more organized than I am. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think the thing that actually drove this, it would not necessarily have been this way. I was actually quite enjoying what I was doing still. Um, I could have used less of it. I never mm. really like hit a taper. I was yeah. still busy clinically pretty much up to the end, except getting off of call for a few years uh, with eternal thanks to my partners who carried the load. But, um, uh, you know, the factor for me was that I was going to come back East because my, you know, my kids are here. My grandkids are here. The rest of my family is here. And both uh, Jane and I thought it was time to come back East. And, you know, not miss the whole grandparent experience. So we were going. And once uh, once I knew that, it was like, do I want to get a New York license? Do I want to be working once I get there? How do I, you know, how do I even conceive of doing that? And what's the point of retirement? Yeah, yeah. So had I, you know, had it been my kids were still in Minnesota, for example, yeah. I would dialed down like everybody does, I would have probably stopped doing abdominal cases and you know, scrubbed some of the harder cases with the kids and kept up doing scopes and you know, something like that and just yeah. sort of papered off. But as it turned out, it wasn't really a realistic option. So you know, it was a funny experience because as I was, you know, as much as I you know, really, I ended up, I didn't deserve it because as you can see with all my struggles of getting into this field, there was no reason that I should have had a fulfilling career because <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> into it, but it turned out I did. And um, 
as they, as I was stopping things at the very end, which happened in a pretty rapid session, it was like every little event that occurred was was pretty unemotional to me. It surprised me. You know, I did like I did my last big case, and I hmm, going to the operating room so much of your time, you know, so many days of the week for so many years, you're just not doing that again, huh? Yeah. Uh, it was it was almost an out of body experience, and it but it didn't really register with me uh in an emotional kind of way did my last scope saw my last patient and then all of a sudden i wasn't doing anything anymore i was done uh and but and and uh you know i you know of course I, we all know people who retire they feel great for a little while or not but then they sort of drop into the abyss and feel you know they're not doing anything they're yeah they get depressed uh so far touch wood it hasn't happened to me i feel good but um, but I was surprised that I could just sort of drop it and let it go. And was that, um, as you say, you know, the, the you know crossing your radar was you know should I get a New York license? And and to me the additional questions to that was even if I did, what would I do with it? And who would want me? And you know all of that sort of stuff. I mean, you know why would um, you know I look at and say, you know, if I was an employer, you know, why would I want me, you know, <laughs> a, at this stage of my life, et cetera. But did you, did you just intellectually work that out and say, no, I don't want to, you know, why would I, no, I'm not going to do that or, or what? Well, I think part of it is inherent in the business of being a surgeon. So it's not like you can be, uh, you know, do major cases. Yeah. One day a week and yeah. not think about them for the other six days a week or worry about them or have complications or that whole mm -hmm. thing of things i uh, you know there are if i had wanted to i suppose i could have found work doing you know the, the day surgery things scopes um i mean the only thing that i actually thought might be interesting to do at all is to to work on anal cancer screening because it's you know such an underserved need yeah it's something that um, I actually found very rewarding and, you know, I think worthwhile. Uh, but in the end, I didn't try and pursue anything or uncover any jobs. And I just thought, I'll just retire and, you know, so what is, um, enjoy my stuff. What, uh, what uh, fills your, what is Robbie Madoff doing now on, uh, when you get up in the morning? Reading the newspaper having an extra cup of coffee. You know, I go to the gym and work out. I ride my bike if the weather's halfway decent. Uh, I, I go to museums. I see a lot of movies. I've seen quite a lot of theater. Uh, I'm mad for the opera. I'm just mad for the opera. So we go to the opera. Uh, even when we were in Minnesota, we used to go for anybody who happens to be listening, you know, go watch the Met in the movie theaters, go to the opera even in the movie theaters is so fantastic. So yeah. um, there's everything. And then of course, you know, my kids are in walking distance and uh, my grandkids are in walking distance. So we have a, a real opportunity to be part of that business. So you're, so you're not bored. I'm not bored. I, I hmm. haven't been bored yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I'm I've got a lot of reading to do. Yeah, and <laughs> so, and how long are you retired now, or whatever? Oh, you... uh, probably eight months, something like that. Okay, so you're still in your first year. Yeah. Still in my first year. I haven't had the big depression hit yet. 
Sure. Yeah. And so do you do you think um, as you're now you're, you're still in the first glow of uh, of the niceness of it? Um, um, are you thinking free at last, free at last, praise the Lord, I'm free at last. Yeah, exactly. Are you, you know, contemplating the great American novel or writing the memoirs of um, of a of a lost soul who became a surgeon or what? Yeah. Well, speaking of lost, I've been um, I've been taking a course online on Paradise Lost, and uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. It, well, it, it sits alongside Ulysses, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of, um, and there is a whole thing of. Um, so John Milton was blind when he mm-hmm. wrote Paradise Lost. And um, one of the things that he thought was the cause of it, he thought he had a film on his eyes, but he also, he thought that it, it might've had to do with his chronic constipation. <laughs> I and, did not know that. <laughs> and then he has a pretty long discussion about, on the nature of angels and how they can actually change sex freely. They can, right. I mean, it's all very, it's all very 21st century. Uh, but the other thing was, you know, it was a question of the age, apparently, was, you know, can angels eat food? And in Paradise Lost, the angels are, uh, at least before the fall, um, come down and hang out with Adam and hang out with Eve and talk with them and have meals with them. And it was something of a miracle. But Milton makes special note of the fact that they ate food and digested it and they passed it with ease. So the angels had excellent movements and probably we're never going to go blind because of that but you know that's the kind of thing well you know maybe i'll just make a little presentation about defecation paradise lost (laughs) and do you think milton had a regular supply of hallucinogenic drugs or was it just occasional (laughs) i believe this is not the academic opinion of him but i think he was barking mad (laughs) a different view though you know because I don't know. It seems unfair. I mean, polite license is fine, but you know, he's a very devout person. Mm. He was also a regicide. He was like in favor of chopping off Charles's Charles the first head. Yes, yes. Pointed restoration, all this stuff. But um, uh, sorry, I just got sidetracked in my thought process. Um, you know, he what he does is in this poem, he makes up, you know, he's a guy who believes almost literally, I think, in what in the biblical story. Yeah. When he's writing about Eden and paradise and the interaction with the devils, he makes up all this stuff on his own authority about the war of the heavens. That uh, when Satan and God actually fight and how they fought yeah. their, their glittering armor and how Satan built this big kind of like something out of Star Wars, this gigantic mountain fortress, all this stuff that he just totally says, okay, I'm writing an epic about the beginning of of Earth or the beginning of humanity, and I'm just going to say what I think based on nothing. It's crazy. Well, and I I think, you know, people um, say what they think, but it's, it's, their thoughts come through the prism of the understanding of the age as well, to a degree. Um, And one of the things that is, has persisted throughout the ages is the connection of many aspects of life 
with the barrel function. It's not new. I mean, it's and it continues today. You know, okay. you yeah, have yeah. to look at the. Okay. Um, That's why so, I can give the definitive presentation about this. Program. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, any um, any bucket list items, um, um, either in travel or things you want to do, um, bungee jumping or. Um, uh, bungee jumping is maybe at the very bottom, the very top of my list of things that I never want to do. Yeah. But, I, but you know, I don't actually don't really have a bucket list. Right. I've been very fortunate to have traveled quite a bit. Mm -hmm. There are places that I have loved, I would love to go back to. There are, and will, I'm sure, there are places that I've not been to that I would love to get to, uh, that I intend to get to. Uh, the notion of a bucket list, you know, it's it, it, to me, it's a little bit, something that's always struck me is, it seems like when people die, often enough you hear them say, and they just finished building their dream home. Yeah. <laughs> like no, exactly. And I feel like a bucket list kind of is in the same category, that if you actually yes. make a bucket list, and yes. he just finally did his bucket list, or he just missed his by whatever it is. Anyway, I don't like the idea of a bucket list. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard of so, so many people in, in within my uh, hobby interest, I've heard of so many people that said, and, you know, he was building his last Ferrari, but sadly never got to drive it. You know? Like that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you go, that's like a bummer, that is. So um, I, I ask uh, people a few standard questions. So um, um, uh, at this stage or even at a further stage, um, how would you like to be remembered? And how do you think you will be remembered? Uh, lovable loser, non-lovable loser. No, I, I think, um, yeah, I don't know how many people will actually remember me. Yes. I would say, um, to me, the thing I take the most pride in actually has been our, uh, my piece of our fellowship. Mm -hmm. uh, we've trained a lot of remarkable people. Yeah. I, uh, are scattered around their academic colorectal surgery or in practice in colorectal surgery. Um, and the number, you know, we, we do five a year, we do it for 30 years or so, and suddenly you have yes. a lot of people that you've impacted. So I think that I'd love to, if I had a choice, I'd like to be remembered for that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think of myself as a skeptic about things. And I would like, uh, for those who know me well enough or not, uh, I would like for people to think skeptically about the about what they're told and what they read. Uh, At least question. At question. least question. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, so, you know, so I, I think. Like I think, as you say, the um, you know that there is a, a body of work that comes from, as you say, graduating four or five or six residents for 20, 30 years, you suddenly develop, you know, it's a quite an alumni. And, you know, I, I do recall um, the, um, the article written, um, which I think was in your honor, if I recall, um, which actually, uh, which was essentially Larry, um, one of your 
you know, that was a, an interesting fellowship year group. Um, yes. And, um, you know, I, you know, the article, which was ostensibly meant to be about you, but it was actually more about the four of you and, and what that experience was. And, you know, those experiences live with people for the rest of their career. For sure. Um, um, so um, any, so what do you think has been the uh, biggest change in surgery in your career for the better and for the worse? Oh, that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. I, for the better I, is probably what we already touched upon, which is I actually do think that, um, you know, that the educational model has changed very dramatically. And, um, it, you know, so much to the better. Um, when I was a medical student, one of the reasons I hesitated about surgery was it was uh, a contact sport. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very aggressive and very personal. And if you did something, even if you didn't do something wrong, the surgeons were just waiting to yell at you for something. That was my experience as a medical student. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people's experience uh, as medical students. So I think uh, didactically, so much for the better. And, and this conversation we've had for the last hour or so would never have happened 25 years ago. It was would have been considered a, a, a demonstration of weakness. Yeah, for sure. So, so that's a good thing. Um, for the worse, um, what have we lost, do you think? Uh, I would say the, unfortunately, um, the structure of giving medical care, I think. Yeah. Mm. But, um, the, uh, the multiple, you know, and some of this is for systems improvement or it's all directed towards systems improvement, but not always fruitfully. Uh, I mean, you know, nobody's going back on the electronic medical record. Yeah, sure, yeah. We're not going backwards with that, but it brings a lot of bad yeah. with it. It brings, you know, the inability, I think, you know, for me personally, the inability to escape from Epic for even a second. Yeah. You can go to your in, you, know, you can say, okay, oh my God, I'm way behind. I'm gonna sit at my in basket, spend an entire weekend doing yeah. nonsense is in there. And then come in Monday morning, and yeah. there's 50 more items that have come through. Yeah, uh, you have to learn how to control that. Yeah, no, it's bad. And I think the other question that people struggle with, and I see this with the various interviews that I do, is you know the the question, you know, who is my doctor? That's been lost. Um, huh. You know, because there's there's a countless number. I mean, there's no there there are so many different answers to that. So. I've got um I, I've got um a little quickie um thirty second thing for you. Um, these are questions that um, there are no correct answers to, although I do actually know what the correct answer is. And you you do, you're not allowed any time to think about this. Are you are you ready? Is it the, is it the cranial nerves? No, it is not the cranial nerves. Are you are you ready to go? Ready. 
Okay. Shamed. You're right. Okay, Beatles or Stones? Beatles. McDonald's or Burger King? Burger King. Uh, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Cats or dogs? Dogs. What do you? These are like the easiest questions in the world. <laughs> Mac or PC? Mac. Football or baseball? Oh, that's hard. That one is hard. <laughs> Football is indefensible. I, it's indefensible. I, but that's the one I like to watch. But <laughs> I, but I'm trying not to because it, you maim people. Yeah, only a and bit. Rhythm <laughs> encephalopathy. So it's in oh. the defense. But go ahead. Homer away. Homer away. Oh. You just like for where to be or a game. Homer away. Uh, also, I'm going to say home. I love to be away, but I'm going to say home. All right. Well, thanks, Robbie. It's been fantastic. Um, John, great talking with your wonderful interviewer. Do you know that? Wonderful. <laughs> I don't know about that. I can see when you retire, when you retire, if you're not driving cars at excessive speed, maybe you should have a little talk show. Well, maybe, uh, maybe, but I, I really appreciate you spending time. So we will, we're going to, we're collecting a stock of these. And um, when we have enough, um, which is more or less now we will start to release them um, and they'll come out on YouTube in a podcast and we will see whether um, whether the assembled millions are, are interested but I for one was very interested to talk to you it's always a pleasure as you know my daughter lives in Brooklyn so there will be for long come a time where we will have to uh, share a bite to eat I'm counting on you letting me know so we can nail down a date Absolutely. Yeah, listen, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. No, it's a pleasure. You take care. Likewise, John.